Hello, hello, hello. Welcome along to Benchcast. I'm Neville O'Donoghue, and this is a podcast for bench warmers. Listen to me now, listen to me. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. We're going to do it. Tyson Fury. It's Torres to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. You're a county? Absolutely not. That's a load of rubbish, Brechon, to be quite honest. Uh, He's a disgrace to have a football club. What a belt he's given it. I, 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 I love I love I love me county, you know. We love Jambalas! Oh, On today's pod, I have former Wallabies prop Ben Darwin. Ben played for the Wallabies 28 times, including the World Cup in 2003 and against the British and Irish Lions in 2001. Ben had to retire in that World Cup in 2003 due to a neck injury in the semi-final against New Zealand. Ben also has a Super Rugby medal for the Brumbies uh, in 2001. And I also talked to Ben about all things rugby, about the recent rugby championship and about his new company, Gainline Analytics. This pod is coming live from get against in Dubai, where I'll be for the rest of the year, so make sure come on in. I'll be in any of the pubs at the weekends watching any of the matches on the big screen. So come in and give me your thoughts on any of the matches and I'll put you up on any of the accounts. So with that, hope you enjoy the pod. Ben Darwin, Ben, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very well. That's good. We'll go straight into it because uh, obviously you've been a former Wallabies prop. Um, what do you think of the rugby championship? And uh, well, look, I'll start with the most controversial one because I was hoping to get you on before the weekend, but uh, the French referee, oh, his name escapes me now again, but he he pulled up uh, Bernard Foley, who was also a former guest in the pipes for time wasting. So, being a proud Australian, what was your opinion on that? I was very happy with the decision. I, I'm, I'm one of the few former Australians that really didn't have much of a problem with it. I was at the game and you could see the miscommunication going on. And the biggest problem was that, was that whilst Foley was preparing to kick, the forwards were huddling when what they should have done is been prepared to chase the kick, been ready for that, then huddle. Yeah. So it was just a bit of an experience on their behalf. It wasn't like we were actively trying to slow things down. And Foley had only just come into the side. He said there was a lot of changes. So it was kind of like, you know, a lot of the things we talk about with stability and understanding. It was just a lot of misunderstanding. And you found all, it, was, it was like, you know, they talk about with accidents, the holes in the wheels of the holes in the cheese lineup. You know, that's basically what turned out. And um, yeah, so I had no problem with that decision. And um, but it was, it's not, a, it's not a fun way to lose a game. And obviously there's a lot of people very unhappy with it, but most of them being Australian probably tells you that the decision was the right decision. Yeah. What do you think? I was Sorry. Just, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. It's uh, good to hear an unbiased opinion. I was sure you'd, yeah, on Bernard Foley, sorry, but no, you, you call it fair enough. Like, I was listening to, um, I think Michael Kerwin and Mills Muliaina, they got a, a show down in New Zealand. I can't think of the name of the show, but he, but you think this is something yep. that's going to change the game now? You know, that when there is a penalty, there'll be a time clock. 
and you know it, it might be taken out of the referee's hand that you'll have a certain amount of time to take the kick to do the line out and if you don't do it it's a free or penalty against you see I don't have a I don't have too much of a problem with it as it lies everyone's saying you have to be consistent but there could be four penalties at every ruck so the referees, like policemen, a mate of mine is a policeman, said the first rule of being a policeman is using your discretion and understanding when people are going to do things, they're going to give them an advantage. If that's the second minute of the game, you don't worry about it. If it's the 78th minute of the game, it's, it's something you worry about. So as long as they use the appropriate discretion, I'm not after... I don't think we should be asking for consistency because then there'd be 300 penalties a game. It's using the appropriate discretion, and you know it wasn't an unfair decision. And um, yeah, I have, I, like I said, I have no problem with it. Um, and I think the more that we take things out of the referee's hand, the longer the game will go. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, what uh, I, I just want to ask you quickly about yesterday, then, because you know it was You're very frozen on the line. Sorry, Ben, you broke up there. One, but I, 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 I'll just quickly ask you about yesterday, then. Uh, New Zealand 40, Australia 14 at Eden Park. Like that was, that was very disappointing, you know, after such a, you know, competitive game last week. Now, I don't think, I don't think Australia were helped by the referee yesterday. I know no, I'm giving the refs an awful time, but I thought he was very trigger happy against Australia yesterday. What was your take on the match? Um, now, I apologise because we have clients across different codes and so I was watching different codes at the same time, but fundamentally... Um, I, I didn't feel there was nothing unexpected in the result. I think the way that we look at games, the main thing that had driven the result the week before was um, Ikatao getting injured early in the game. If you lose a 12, you lose a lot of your defensive functionality. Um, and so that they kind of got a lot. And also Kane was out early as well, which sort of gave us a bit of a shot. New Zealand did very well. But when New Zealand were reasonably complete, this was a much more experienced New Zealand side. And obviously in Auckland is the hardest place in the world to beat anyone because, you know, we know in our football statistics that, that basically the more home crowd you have, the more biased the referee is towards the home team. Um, that's in all codes. There's no difference in that. And so, um, that, that, you know, if you've got 55,000 New Zealanders and three Australians, that's going to be pretty heavily biased towards New Zealand. So I'd, I'd still think the beating them in Auckland, you know, as even Ireland found, is the hardest place to beat them. And um, if, you, if you do that, you should rightfully be easily number one team in the world. So um, 40 to, to whatever it was last night, I really had fundamentally no problem with. That's pretty much where we're at. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, you're going to get a trigger-happy ref with that type of crowd dynamic. And finally, on Australia, before I get into your own career, uh, where do you think Australia are at the moment with a year out to the World Cup? Do you think um, they're in a good place and you think there's, there's good young players coming through? It's, it's a challenge. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know much about research and the way we look at teams, but Right now, it's for everyone else to catch up to Ireland. Ireland's the number one team in the world right now. The problem for Ireland is, is that in World Cups, everyone catches up to them because they get time together they don't usually get. Leinster's together all the time. Ireland's together all the time. And so Ireland is generally number one in the world two years out from the World Cup. 
and then over this period, it's for everyone else to catch up. We're not catching up at the moment, numbers-wise, to Ireland. Uh, England, uh, New Zealand will be. Um, South Africa are not far away. And so realistically, we have to find a way to put together a side uh, capable of beating Ireland or France in Paris. And at the moment, I don't think we're improving fast enough, and, and the numbers would say that. Yeah. Um, so going on to your own career then, Ben, because I know I want to talk about your... I know you're a big tinker of the game and big into your statistics. I was listening to you on uh, another podcast, Sleep, Eat, Repeat. But um, yep. I also want to talk to you about uh, your own career because you won 28 caps for the Wallabies, if I'm right in saying that. And then, cruelly, that was taken away from you in the 2003 semi-final against the All Blacks uh, with a neck injury. Yep. Um, I just want to talk, like, you're from Melbourne originally, is that all right? We couldn't find it on the Wikipedia. So, like, how... What was your route into professional rugby? How did you get going? Uh, my brother was was uh, he he played. He was a very good player at his school. He was a first fifteen player in year ten. I followed him. He was a winger. I didn't have that skill set. Um, being the chubby kid, I basically followed in the prop. And then I saw the nineteen ninety one Rugby World Cup, and I was just enthralled. And I decided that's it. I'm going to play for Australia. And so I just went about doing that. And, and set that task, um, was picked up by the Brumbies and was very, very lucky to be part of that club. And, and I went from being bench at the Brumbies to starting Wallabies in about nine months. So I just went bang, 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 straight through. And then, and then uh, was part of that team from 2001 to 2003. And then, and then by 27, uh, that was it, it was over. It was, it was, that Brumbies team was a great team. Wasn't George Gregan on that team and a few other big names? Yes, yeah, so it was uh, Bill Young, uh, David Giffen, George Smith, George Gregan, Bernard, Stephen Larkham, Joe Roth, Andrew Walker, James Holbeck, um, Rod Kafer. Yeah, it was, it was a, a pretty good side um, and we managed to win the title 2001 play the final 2000, 2002, uh, semi-finals 2003. So, yeyeah, it was a pretty good side. And a lot of those guys played for Australia. And I just kind of floated along on the back of that. Owen Finnegan as well and Irishman. I remember when we went to, we went to Dublin and Owen requested 140 tickets for our game in Dublin because he needed to give tickets to all his cousins. So, uh, was that? Am I right in saying you beat the Auckland Blues in the final of two thousand one? Is that right? No, we beat the Sharks. Sorry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, we beat the Sharks. Uh, yep. No bother. Um, and I want to talk to you as well because I'm a fellow prop also. Um, and like you, you obviously, I think tight head was your preferred position, but you played loose head as well. What do you think of the way the scrummaging's gone now? Like you know, because obviously. The scrum is an internal part of the game and it's important that it's protected. But you think, you know, a lot of commentators are always like, we need to speed up the scrums, but you think anything more can be done with the scrums and you think it's getting, as you you to retire because of a neck injury, do you think it's getting worrying how big and how physical the players are getting? I think the rules have responded very well. We're not getting the impact injuries we did back then. The thing that I'm always was concerned about the most when the rules changed was whether Tighthead was going to be able to bear his weight down enough without getting the hit. Because it just back then, it'd just be hit him as hard as you can. And if you can deal with that, it's fine. 
we then went into a period of time where we had a lot more collapses than we do now. So we had a ridiculous amount of collapses in Super Rugby, but we seem to have gotten past that. So um, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with where it's at. I'm not comfortable with where the feed is at. Um, I think we need to be a little bit stronger on that. It's fundamentally the strike has gone away from the game. Um, and so we need to we need to find a way to still make it a contest. And the other thing that I find frustrating as well is that referees will simply give a penalty to dominance without actually seemingly have something to penalise. If a scrum goes forward five metres, they just penalise the attacking team anyway. Let it play. You know, they just penalise without even anyone breaking off sometimes. So that frustrates me. Yeah, no, definitely. And also, I want to ask you, Ben, about because you you to retire because of a neck injury. Like, uh, I remember you made your debut against the Lions, I think it was one because I, that's when I was starting to really get into the game, uh, that Lions tour against Australia. But, like, what what was that like as a player when it just got taken away from you like that? You know, like, how did you, I, I suppose we talk about mental health, but, like, how did you overcome such a crushing thing like that? The first year is really easy because, um, you know, everyone's very nice to you when you retire and you're never told you're not wanted. You know, a lot of guys in rugby, you get told, oh, you're no longer wanted by this club. I never got to go through that. So that was quite, that was quite sort of positive. Um, my body's kind of thanking me now a bit because I haven't had some of the issues. You look at, say, Carl Heyman, for example, has got you know, issues with his, with his brain, the poor bugger. So um, the struggle I found with it was once everyone had kind of left me alone about a year afterwards, I fell in a bit of a heap. And the way I describe it is like when you go skiing, you know, you lose a, you lose a ski and you can stay upright for a while, but at some point you've got to crash. But it's yeah. not exactly at the same time. So I, I sort of went on no problems. And then a year after I just sort of crashed and, and, then, and then had some challenges then. But you know, I, I enjoy what I do now more than playing. I'm, I'm having the time of my life with this, with this work. And so um, uh, it's, it's much more satisfying um, because, to be honest with you, when you're in the Brumbies and you're winning games, you could, you could leave that team and the you could just, team just keeps going. You know, the year I left, they still won the final. So um, you never really felt like you were contributing that much when you had those sort of superstars on the field. No, definitely. And uh, before we get on to your job, um, I saw that you've done a lot. You did a few triathlons when you finished playing. Was that something you did to, well, to keep yourself in shape, but also to, uh, to, to that bit of competitiveness? Is that why you did the triathlons? Um, it was a bit of a happy accident. I mean, I'd always liked the idea of it. Um, I'm sure I've done plenty since then to get myself out of shape, but I've got four kids now. Um, it was, it was opportunity to do it. Um, I love the challenge of it. And, and the thing I noticed that was very different about it is when you cross the line, there's this overwhelming sense of like, well, I actually did this myself. Like I said, when you're at the Brumbies or you're the Wallabies, it's like, well, they could pretty much do it without me. So there was an interesting individual flavor to, to having accomplished something. And it was a, it was a hard thing to do. And Ironman's a hard thing to do. Um, also being heavy, um, but I just thought it was a good way to keep my head um, at a challenge because you're constantly used to having to have a routine, so it gives you a good routine. Yeah. As I said, I was listening to you on another podcast and you kind of it reminded me of Moneyball. You were on about statistics and all this. So tell me, how did you get into that then when you f finished retiring? Like, like when you were playing, were you always a big tinker of the game with statistics and all that? 
I've always loved statistics. I've always loved computers. Um, I've, I've always loved uh, um, trying to understand things. And I, I specifically remember, you know, thinking about how is it Australian rugby is successful because we're a very small country, you know, not, not as small as Ireland or Wales, but in terms of we don't have a lot of players. You know, we only had two professional clubs or three professional clubs and we're winning World Cups and that never really made sense to me. And, you know, I remember a guy called Peter Fitzsimons who was an author saying, it's always amazed at what England could dish up given they have like a million players and 50 clubs, like they should have something better. So I was confused by that. And then when I, um, when I coached, I also noticed I'd go and coach somewhere, it'd work great. And I'd go another place and I'd be terrible. The outcomes would be terrible. So I started to realize my ability to change the outcome was quite limited. And, uh, and then when I started doing um, statistics, I sort of taught myself to be a data analyst and a video analyst. I really found that none of the data in terms of the on-field match data was telling me why teams win. You know, the Crusaders have the worst set piece and they'd win the game or they have no territory, no possession. So I was trying to understand what are the drivers of actual um, competitive performance because match data, as I would call it, just another version of the score. It's not really telling you the whys. And so the, the work I do now is about understanding the why teams are successful, what are the drivers of it, but more than anything else, what doesn't make a difference? Like, does facilities make a difference? Does coaching make a difference? Does, you know, player pools make a difference? Yeah. No, did you, did, did you have to learn, like, did you have to learn all this? Like, what did you do in university? Like, did you just fall into it when you retired? I did primary school teaching. Um, I, I had to teach myself. I taught myself data analytics when the, when the, when the financial crisis hit in 2008. I have ADHD. So I, my brain is, I get very obsessed with things. So I, I basically had to teach myself the whole process and, and taught myself statistics. Um, but I also employ other people much smarter than me to help me to understand what I'm looking for. But what I was trying to bring was my own experiences as a, as a coach, having to make decisions about the things you do in recruitment and player retention and things like that. And, and also, um, you know, when, you, when you're providing coaches with statistics, you know, the, the, you have to give them certain information, but also leave certain information out to try to help them to, to see the, the things that, that they need to see. So um, I, 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 I'm basically self-taught in this, in this industry, but I actually think that's an advantage because almost all modeling that's built on prediction is built on form, which is, in, which is not particularly accurate, particularly when you're dealing with how teams are changing. So Japan in the 15 World Cup, form would never have predicted that. But the methodology we're using now is, is can show why that occurred. Yeah, well, one thing I thought was very interesting, I thought quite cheeky out of you do, was uh, I was at the time Ireland beat the All Blacks in Chicago, and you said to statistically that was the worst All Blacks team on the pitch. It was one of, it was, the key to that was fundamentally you had Kano playing at five. Um, so he was out of position because um, they had injury in pregnancy, I think, in their locks. And they had a 12 and 13 that either played one game together or never played together. And so you've got this double scenario. And, and you know, the Irish, it, it, it was a little bit of an early success for Ireland, but you could see it in their previous match. They'd almost beaten them in Dublin. 
you know, I, I don't think it, I think 40 points was a pretty good reflection on where the All Blacks were at that day, but they are not that bad a team. And I think you then saw in the next game in Dublin and the next couple of games over the next five years is where that relationship is at, which is the Irish are a 10, 15% better side than the All Blacks right now, as opposed to that day, which was, you know, 30, 40% better than them. All right. So, like, so the name of your company now, Ben, is Gainline and so Gainline Analytics. So, yep. where, where are you based in? And tell me, so say if uh, what happens, so like, so the, do the Brumbies or the Melbourne Reds, do they come to you looking for statistics and feedback for matches? Is it? No, so we, we really stick away from the matches scenario. We do have match day data, but we more talk to the boards and the owners of clubs or we talk to countries about how to make their systems more efficient. If you, look at, if you look at Irish rugby as an example, is the change from the club-based model where players are playing mainly UCD, then Leinster for a bit, then for Ireland, that's a really inefficient system. The current system of, you know, Leinster schools, Leinster 19s, Leinster A, Leinster Island, or, you know, whatever program you're a part of, is a much more cohesive model, which is why they're the, you know, number one country in the world. But... Um, that's that can either happen as an accident or it happens on purpose people you can design systems to function that way so what we help clubs to do is to design systems to make them much more effective on the field and to give them an unfair advantage um as in terms of performance overall okay so to say it again so you look at like the whole infrastructure of like you're saying there the, the model around Irish rugby rather than the actual playing. Yeah, the, the outcome is the outcome. The outcomes take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, and and you've, you can see that over the last 20 years, there's been a continuous improvement over time. You get dips with coaches, you get dips with, with you know, groups of players, but fundamentally um, there's been this, this long-lasting improvement until Ireland have become, you know, the number one team in the world. And, and um, it's now up to others to get themselves sorted out it doesn't guarantee them to win the next world cup because you can get as we saw with 15 you can get an injury at 10 and it's over you know you 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 need um a little bit of luck and a little bit of of uh, an opportunity but it gives each system hopefully the best opportunity to get the most out of it they can oh definitely and uh finally on that also been because i saw you when you finished then you did a bit of coaching i think you went in with the melbourne reds was it? and i see you went to japan and you went to other places so so there's it, the melbourne sorry yeah. so like was it so basically you did coaching for a few years and then you slowly transitioned into statistics and all that so i started coaching first of all club in sydney then i was at the western force um under john mitchell uh, and then I, and I went to Japan, coached for about three or four years, came back to the Melbourne Rebels when they first started. So Melbourne Rebels was an expansion franchise. And I, I'd already done some data analysis in Japan. And so whilst, when I came back to Australia, they said, well, we don't have anyone, so you do it. So I did it there. And then I went back to Japan again and uh, coached for another year at Suntory. Um, but what I found was with coaching is you're fundamentally – you have no control over your own destiny. You know, if you're an assistant coach to somebody, if they don't win, um, you, you get fired and so you get moved. And so once we start having kids, I realised I've got no control over this. And particularly with the data we see now, the, even the ability of coaches beyond the list management component is quite limited to affect the outcome. If you look at Graham Henry at Wales, went backwards, comes to the All Blacks, 
wins everything. So it's, it's uh, yeah, there's no control for a coach. So I thought this is not for me anymore. Yeah. I just very finally in your business because I run my own business as well, Bench Warmer Sports website. Was it very daunting for you setting that up for, say, for someone young that, or well, not young, but so, someone that wants to set up their own business? Because you have a young family and all that. So when you set up this, was there big worries that what happens if this fails? What happens if it doesn't work? Yeah, that's that. I mean, you know, I basically became unemployed. The team I had went undefeated, but I still got fired at the end of the season. So, you know, I come back from Japan. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to coach anymore. I've got a family, so I've got no choice. And what do you do when you become unemployed? You set up a consulting business. You know, that's that's the general way. So um, this business actually started off actually with just providing lists of player availability. And, and that didn't really work. But I started to notice something in the teams. And so, as my wife says, I kind of made up a business out of thin air. But eventually... After 10 years, it's it's starting to work and starting to do well, and we're going into um, EPL and uh, going into NFL and and um, and other other sports over time. So it's it's yeah terrifying, but that you you do if it is to be, it's up to me a little bit. As as much of a cheesy line that is, you have at least enough control over whether you survive. And so there's actually much more satisfying than working for somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I just think it, Gaelic sports would be a one to get into because I don't think that's being done here in Ireland. And Gaelic sports in Ireland is absolutely massive, you know? Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because Gaelic, Gaelic sports is probably, with AFL, probably one of the most cohesive leagues in the world. We've done some measuring of it. We've had some conversations around it. Um, and and it, show, it has the same fundamentals as any other team, you know, what you call a 360 degree, uh, you know, invasive sport. And, and yeah, the fundamentals we see across Gaelic sports, um, particularly Gaelic football and hurling is, is the, the fundamentals are exactly the same as every other sport. And you're doing any coaching at the moment or are you still involved in any of the game? No, no, it's, um, it's all work at the moment. I, I, I've done some coaching of my kids' teams at, at various stages, but um, no, it's mostly travel and work. Um, we're based here in Melbourne, but we're actually opening up in the UK in the UK in the next uh, twelve months. Um, so yeah, so it's that and and corporate work as well. It's the same same fundamentals. Uh, back to the Rogers, then Ben. Finally, um, just interested. Who's the best player you played with and played against? Uh, Bill Young's the best player I played with. He was a loose head prop. Um, he single handedly almost won us the final. By, by completely um, tricking Andre Watson into that Phil Vickery was taking the scrums down. So I think we got three scrum penalties that basically kept us in the game. He's the smartest guy I've ever scrummaged with or against by a country mile and has the body of a homeless man. So I don't know how he did it, but he was, a, he was an incredible guy. Of course, I've got a, I've got a bias towards props. Um, and then, and then if, I, if, I, if, I just, if I take the run at basically Ola Brown, Carl Heyman, were my probably my favourite players of all time. Um, I got to play against Carl, but not scrummage against him because I scrummaged on the other side. Um, and then, and then you'd have guys who individually you have have difficulty with. And um, and I found Jason Leonard really hard to scrummage against. You just couldn't move him. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about him. He didn't attack you, but you just couldn't shift him at all. It was like granite. And so that was probably one of the great pleasures uh, going up against Jason Leonard. If you could change one thing about the game of rugby, what would you change? I'd get rid of flankers. 
Uh, and also, um, there was one other. Oh, yeah. Last question before I move on to the last thing after that. Who's going to win the World Cup? Well, like I said, at this stage, it's it's Ireland and France, and everyone is a long way back. Um, they've got a they've got a lot of work to do to catch up to them, but uh, that's the good thing about World Cups is those those poorly put together teams get some time together they don't usually get. But I've never seen a draw this heavily lopsided as this one, so it gives England every chance to win it every chance just by the way it's set up because at some point somebody's going to make a mistake. One thing we did find quite interesting was was something as innocuous as jerseys can make a huge influence in World Cups. I don't know if you've heard that research we did before, but we found when you change jersey to something you're not used to, your um, your accuracy in attack drops by like 40%. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so you think he can... You think England have a bit? Yeah, a lot of people are saying Fiji are the team to watch as well. They think they get a good run because they're on the right side of the draw as well. Yeah, they and they in Japan could could come from anywhere. I mean, Fiji is now they're getting that rug that Super Rugby team, which is going to help them in the same way it helped, you know, Argentina with the Haguaras for a while. So, I think yeah, they've they as much as anything else, that draw gives them the best opportunity. But like I said, the, the the number one team in the world right now is Ireland, and then France, and then everyone else. Do you think? Do you think rugby will survive, Ben? Because you know you see all these like Steve Thompson, a guy who you would have played against. He's coming out now, and uh, with concussions, and I think he's soon the RFU. And also, like um, even I look at the game down in down in the southern hemisphere. You know, like I'm always kind of feel sorry for you lads down there because you know you have to. Um, there's a lot of commuting, you know, between. New Zealand, South Africa, all that. Whereas Ireland, England, England to France, it's only a short hop. But do you think the game is under under a small bit of pressure? I think that I think you know one of the things I, I used to talk about quite a bit, which which is the one of the greatest pressures in on rugby in the Southern Hemisphere is the price of jet fuel. You know, because of that distance constantly all the time. I mean, we, as players, we used to love it. The travel it was fantastic, but um, I think rugby is going to take a very different model in 10 or 15 years time um and and i think that the 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 sport to watch in terms of all of this is the nfl is the nfl is able to lead the way and reduce you know some of these components it's going to make a really really big difference i think we need to completely change how we train that's got to be dramatically changed and i think we need to look at our calendar and the time off that guys get um and I think that's more of a problem in the Northern Hemisphere than it is in the Southern Hemisphere. Even most of the most of the issues you're having with players is in the Northern Hemisphere. And the amount of games they're playing there is almost a double or a third more um, than, than we're playing down here. No, definitely. All right, Ben. Final thing I do, I do this with all my guests. So questions in 60 seconds. Okay? So favourite food? Uh, pavlova. How often do you do your dirty laundry? Uh, every day, because I've got four kids. Uh, uh, Favourite holiday? A uh, place called Newcastle on the uh, central coast of New South Wales. Who would play you in a movie? Uh, it depends on where my weight is at, but... Um, uh, um, Oh God, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the actor is, but my wife would choose and she would actually play herself. That's what she's told me. She would choose who who plays me and she'd play herself. So, all 
Oh, we'll find out in time. <laughs> uh, leg day or chest day? Always leg day. Um, favourite film? Um, either Moneyball or uh, The Big Short. Uh, go to karaoke song? Um, anything by Enrique Iglesias. Oh, uh, craziest thing you've ever done? Um, standing in the middle of a stadium in Argentina and I remember, you know, trying to sing the national anthem, the noise was just unbelievable and I remember looking up and there was a plane flying over the stadium and you couldn't even hear it because it was in Buenos Aires and then the Argent and it was so loud I couldn't believe it and then this was actually a bit earlier than this so it was the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life and then the Argentinians ran out and then my chest started shaking with just the noise so that was uh, I just remember thinking, wow, I'm, I'm in it now. Yeah. Uh, best book you ever read? Uh, Moneyball. And, um, yeah, and then uh, finally, tea or coffee? Coffee. Yeah, no bother. Ben, thanks a million for that. It's a pleasure. And thanks for listening. And thanks again to former Wallabies prop Ben Darwin for coming on the show. It was good to get an insight from him, especially to look back recently at the rugby championship because what a tournament that was this year and it's going to make for a cracking World Cup in 12 months time. But uh, thanks to Ben, what a career he had there with the Wallabies, 28 caps and he was very unlucky with that neck injury but I wish him all the best with uh, his gain line analytics uh, business. It looks very interesting and uh, obviously he's onto a good thing there. So thanks to Ben and remember you can get this podcast on Spotify and wherever else you get your podcast. I'll be back again next week with someone else from the world of sport. Uh, Remember, I'll be in McGettigan's for the rest of the year, watching all the matches on the big screen, so make sure to come into any of the pubs in Dubai and come and find me and I'll put you up on any that counts. So with that, I'm Neville O'Donoghue. Thanks for listening. I'm out of here.